0: Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Twilio. This October, Twilio is hosting
1: Signal, the Customer Developer Conference of the Year. To grab your tickets, go to signal.twilio.com and be sure to use the code MISSION20 at checkout to receive 20% off your tickets. In today's episode, I sit down over drinks with my good friend Divine. Divine's story is one of struggle, tragedy, and triumph. In today's episode, you'll learn how he broke into tech in Silicon Valley, landed a killer role on the Udacity team, and how he got mentorship from a billionaire. If that wasn't enough, he also managed to become the official A16Z rapper along the way. If you're not familiar with A16Z, they're one of the best venture capital firms in the world. Now, let's jump into today's episode. I wasn't that familiar with your story till... We got to hang out for an extended period of time, that dinner right. when, that Ellen brought down. Right. And your story's incredible. So I wanted to bring yeah. you back and oh, thank you. Hopefully walk through from the earliest day, not everything. yeah, yeah I time got you. Board, yeah, yeah. the highlights and everything, because I can't imagine going through some of the things that you've been through. Yeah. And our listeners, our audience, they're always hungry for accelerated learning ideas and ways to <clears throat> save themselves time, maybe save themselves some heartache. And right. in my mind, you've blazed so many different trails. I'd love to start at the beginning.
0: Yeah, definitely. So you know the premise, you know premise of my life, man. If I put it into a, in a, a tagline, would be from crack to rap to tech. You know, as you know, I often use that to kind of set the stage for the conversations I have with individuals. <clears throat> so when we look at we look at the crack aspect of it, I was born and raised in my early age and young teens in Newport, Rhode Island, known as America's uh, first resort, a small city by the sea, and the smallest state in the union, which is Rhode Island. So yeah, I was I was initially raised middle class family. I knew who my father was. Father was't in the home though, so it was really my mom's you know, taking care of me. And my younger brother grew up there. Unfortunately, my mother went through some some trials and tribulations with my father, had emotional mental breakdown. You know what I'm saying That caused her to shift her whole direction in life. and she ended up like just packing up and moving away. She was going down to Louisiana, Leesville, Louisiana. And how, move, move how old were you there. at the
1: time where she decided to I think to...
0: it was crazy because I actually came home. I was going to Catholic school at the time. Came home, and this is how I re- recall it, right? It's been a long time. I was probably like 9 or 10 years old. Came home from Catholic school. Came into the crib, and she's like having a, a house sale. Like everything in the house must go type type sale. And that's why I vaguely remember. And I went through a spiritual experience actually before that even happened. when even. Sun's about to set, I'm riding my bike. And this voice, I heard this voice in in my head. That's the only way I could really describe it. That said everything's gonna be all right. And I I actually looked up into the sky and it was like that voice was just, I just heard that voice, I looked right up. I never understood what it was until later on I was incarcerated and started digging deep into spirituality, actually recalled that event. So it was crazy, so that happened to me. And like I said, my mother picked up and went away and I was about 10 years old. When that
1: happened. When you had that experience of riding on the bike, was it like jarring for you? Did it stick with you for a long time? Did it stick with you and then you kind of forgot about it? And then later when you were incarcerated, it just came back to you? What was that experience like? Because I'm always not the same experience, but I've had similar experiences. Right. And I always want to dig into like, what was it like for you type thing?
0: Right. I mean, um, it was almost like this instantaneous thing. And I looked up into the sky and, and that was it. Like I didn't question it. I didn't, it's just as if I heard this voice in my my head saying yeah. this, right? Almost like if you if you if you speak things without moving your mouth, but you reciting them in your mind. Sure. You can hear them. Isn't yeah. that crazy? You can actually hear what you're saying without even moving your mouth. Right. Any sound coming out. It was just like that. Like I said, it happened instantaneously, didn't think nothing of it. But years later, when I would really dig deeper into spirituality, it came back to me. I recalled it. Yeah. And what's crazy about it, like I had my mother had always pushed us into kinda in the, in the church kinda catholic school i was going to catholic school and all that bible study when i was younger and that was due to her being raised by nuns she was a ward of the state and she was raised in a home and it was nuns that raised her so she was brought up real strict and you know having having good morals and things of that nature so i always had that like that vague foundation of religion yeah but i really didn't attract a religion much
1: yeah you know what S- i mean same here like i i could appreciate some things about it but there was plenty of things where i was like you know why is it like that? That doesn't seem to make that much sense. Do you know why? And people didn't like questions that much. Right, right. Nah, <laughs> nah of threw at all. me off. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, religion, religion, sports, and politics.
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you
0: know, you got to be easy with those things.
1: So, w- what was school like? What were those early days like for you? How did you deal with or react? How were you thinking about authority and learning at that point? What was that like for you?
0: I was always studious. I was always, always a good student. Always had great grades when I was younger. So, I had real strong educational inclination or educational foundation. Sure. Not until all these things happened with my mother and everything changed that I would I would, you know, not really rebel, because I became wayward, you know, engaging in basic criminal activity, stealing bikes, running through the neighborhood and, and doing things like that. But nothing really crazy. But, you know, I was definitely wayward and, you know, I eventually only, you know, got an eighth grade formal education. And I never I never graduated or never graduated high school and never went beyond eighth grade. In high school, but I was always fairly intelligent.
1: Yeah. Cause you've been, one of the things that we bonded over was we've read similar books. We love studying similar things. Right. And when did that self directed learning come into the picture for you? Was it when you started, you know, I call it unlicensed pharmaceutical sales, but when you started yeah, like yeah. selling and things like that, was that, was it learning on the table then? Did you teach yourself that or um, how that work?
0: <clears throat> well, a few things took place. It was like I, I went to the streets around probably like, 12, 13, started dealing in the streets and just, I just pay attention. Uh, I'm, I'm a real good study, but I like to observe things before I really practice them or sure. execute on them myself. And I like to learn, you know, I'm a lover of knowledge. It comes from me, you know, being a Gemini and all that. I really love learning. So I would just pick up how, how brothers did it in the street and watching what they did. And then, you know, just word of mouth and just really executing it. Just learning by trial and error, yeah. And then I would apply my intelligence in different ways to get different results, to meet a, a specific objective.
1: And that type of classical approaches, it seems like in our modern day schools, and a lot of people forget that it's okay to learn through doing, like learn through experience. That's how right, right. it's always been done. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like that's been lost, or are people in Silicon Valley just now starting to embrace that?
0: I think Silicon Valley. I think anywhere. I mean, people. I mean, people from the background I come from. Not embraced right, right, conscious level in in the hood or the projects is is real low, you know what I'm saying? And then you have this music that's not really building on anything, yeah. So it's a lot of different influences of why people from my demographic aren't really high level, high level with consciousness or high level with with education. Yeah, I mean, I just think you know, being self taught and and taking that route, I think entrepreneurship has that embedded in it, right? You know what I'm saying? If, If you think about it, so not just Silicon Valley, but anywhere you find entrepreneurship. I look at that as people going out there, learning on their own or learning from trial and error, learning from mentors and just, you know, and that's a form of being self-taught really. Sure. Because you have to reach out to people and see if they're going to even take the time to build with you and, you know, and, and, you know, put you on to certain things. Right. You know?
1: And so at at this point in time, you are starting to do things in the streets and you're around 13, you're, you're in your teen years. What's, what's going on? What are you thinking about? And what's your life like?
0: Oh man, it, it it was, it was turmoil, man. You know, it was dysfunctional. My mother at this time was basically a full-blown addict, you know what I'm saying, addicted to drugs, crack cocaine. I lost her motherhood, you know, and I'd never experienced that before because my mom's always been there for me, you know. And I I love her to life, man, you know what I'm saying? Make no mistake about it. But when I speak real about my experiences and and, and her her struggles and her challenges, you know, I speak from the heart. I speak real. I'm not speaking in a way, you know, I'm trying to belittle her or undermine her. Because she loved me, man. She did everything she could to make sure I was right. Mm. And for the most part, she, she succeeded. You know what I mean? She dealt with this issue with the drugs. But my life at that time was like, you know, no food in the house, no clothing. The rent was was either late sometimes or not paid at all. Right. That was a problem at times, the rent not being paid.
1: And it's and, not like school or any authority figures are saying like, hey, if you want to make money, here's how you do it. Here's how it's yeah, done. Like, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, exactly. none yeah, of that information. I, I, yeah,
0: exactly. It just had to go... Into the streets and, and do my thing. So me and my younger brother started, you know, doing our thing in the streets. My whole goal at the time, to be honest with you, was really to save my mom. Like my whole thing, she, she's my superhero, man. Yeah. You know what I mean, straight up and down. She's my superhero, man. And um, I wanted to free her from not only from the addiction of the drugs, but from that negative, that whole negative environment. Because I, I realized that at an early age, this isn't a good environment. Sure. Because I had experienced a better environment in my youth.
1: And one of the things I love about your story that I want everyone that's listening and watching to know, I guess, I don't want to speak for you, but from the beginning, basically, and when you were in your late teens, you're thinking about how to open up a store or how to get into other businesses almost as soon as you begin. So on top of this, you're basically figuring out how to save your mom, help her out, get her the help she needs, and trying to figure out how to make any money in general to feed yourself, take care do you have a family at this point or? Yeah, 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 I have, um,
0: 16, yeah, definitely.
1: Okay, yeah. so yeah, so what are you thinking about? Because you're planning for the long term, you're trying to get in a place where you're doing legitimate business thing almost as soon as you start. So yeah, what's that thought process like and what are you doing?
0: Yeah, I, I get my business intelligence from my father. You know what I'm saying, he's really good with numbers and that's the way that I would always figure things out was through mathematics. Yeah, I would always just, times two or times three, knew I had to save this amount. Had to match, you know, the drugs right. I was procuring. I had to match those. Next time I went back and read up, or purchase again, right, right, did a repurchase or reorder, whatever. I would always double that up, make sure I put money away. So I always had like a, a mathematical system of how I did it, and no one really understood how I was elevating so fast. Yeah, because my thing was I wanted to get out the hood as quick as possible. I wanted to free my mom from her drug addiction as, as soon as possible. I didn't have time to wait. I didn't have no games to play. So my whole focus was always like in the streets figuring out how do I get to that next level. That's what it was about for me. And from there, like, I just always thinking entrepreneurial. I had the, my long-term goal was like, you know, saving my money, stacking my money, opening a sneaker store. That was one of my visions, opening up a sneaker store, taking my son and his mother out the hood and then living a better life. Like going somewhere else, living a better life, running a sneaker store. And then I actually had, before I got caught up in my first big sentence with the federal government, I actually uh, had enrolled in school for audio engineering, sure. video and audio engineering. You know what I mean? So I wanted to pursue music.
1: And what what happened before you could start school or, cause I think at this point you were in juvenile hall once or or twice. Yeah, well prior
0: to that point I was in, yeah, it was juvenile.
1: And so what happened? When did the feds come into the picture and when did you get incarcerated for the first time?
0: I was hustling for a while and I had sold to a confidential informant when I was like 17, but the charge didn't come forth until I was 18. I retained an attorney. I spoke to the attorney about my, what my options were. I'm like, well, I committed this crime when I was a juvenile, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Why can't I just go to a juvenile facility or whatever and handle it there? I didn't realize that had I taken it as an adult, I would've got bail, I would've been back on the streets right. immediately, versus as a juvenile, they could've held me till I was 21. And I was, you know what I'm saying, because I was 18 at the time, so they could help me, what they call FOC, the Order of Court. I could have been held for three years. So I kind of played myself in that whole situation because at the end of the day, my drug charge was still used against me in federal court, that same drug charge to raise my
1: points. Yeah. You
0: know what I'm saying? To give me more time.
1: And this is a really important point. This is a story I haven't shared. I don't want to get into it too much, but basically, you can be questioned or approached or targeted as a subject for federal investigation for doing almost anything like you don't have to be out there doing something that's illegal in order to be targeted and investigated this is like something that's happened i speak from experience of someone who's been targeted it is not a pleasant experience it's a situation where people are being very very aggressive very threatening to you and you generally have no recourse if you don't have a good knowledge of the law and a lot of the information you're going to have to pay out of pocket just to like, just to defend yourself from an allegation, not even a charge. So this is like, this is really heavy stuff. How old are you at this point And what's your thought process like? Nine
0: months, I'm back in the streets. I get back into the drug game. And this is where I started getting heavy. I've been traveling back and forth to New York since I was about 10, 11 in that area. Sure. Traveling to New York City, my first time going to New York. And I was always moved by the culture of New York. I always identified with it, always connected with it through hip hop. But anyway, what ended up happening to fast forward that, when I got out of the juvenile facility, I'm back and forth to New York, doing my thing at, at, at the next level. And eventually, I connected with somebody who was, who was actually basically brought up uh, undercover to me. I connected with the confidential informant directly, and the confidential informant brought us to the, to the undercover agent. And at first, it was, initially was a state thing, it was a local arrest. And it ended up turning federal arrest. You know, they put in a complaint, a federal complaint against me because of the level I was moving at was I was, was I was the biggest drug dealer in the area at that age. They basically made a federal complaint, federal complaint that came down. And then one day I'm sitting in state prison and I get a visit and I'm thinking like it's an attorney or something. Right. I had paid this attorney, this mob attorney actually, one of the biggest mob attorneys out there in Rhode Island at the time, I paid him so I thought I was getting a visit from him. I go down there and it's, it's a probation officer basically telling me your, your case has been picked up by the feds. And at that time, no one really had been even charged on a federal level for the crack cocaine law. I was one of the first. right? You know what I'm saying? I was the first from Newport, Rhode Island, one of the first in, in Rhode Island. So I was like oblivious to like feds. We, like I didn't even understand what it was. Right. And I knew nothing about the crack law how it worked. I knew nothing about the federal system, how that worked on a point system, and a and how, it.
1: how it can scale, you know, scale yeah. your time up. And so and the justice system at this point has to be terrified about the epidemic because they don't know what's going on. They don't know what it's going to turn into. Did you catch that feeling that people in the justice system were panicking because they were so afraid that crack was going to become just like this epidemic that took over everything? Or what would, would you think that other people's mindset was like during this time period? To be truthfully honest, man,
0: you know, the CIA is, w- is who brought Crackle came into the hood. So the government was very well aware of crack. (laughs) And that's why the crack loan was created. Those laws were originally created, those harsh penalties were originally created for pharmaceutical companies. It's crazy how you mentioned pharmaceuticals earlier. Unlicensed pharmaceuticals. Right, unlicensed pharmaceuticals, right. Because those laws were actually used against those companies that broke the laws on control substances. Gotcha.
1: Right. And for anybody that's listening to, just a quick side note. So if you're interested in more of what Divine's saying, this is basically all documented stuff. There's a Life and Times of Barry Diller, recent movie that came out with Tom Cruise where he plays Barry Diller, who's right. essentially CIA-backed drug dealer. So this is uh, not a positive legacy, but it's something that we have to talk about honestly, because this is information that's in the public domain. If we're gonna make things better, we gotta confront this uh, Absolutely. and not so, be afraid to fr- confront it. So. Yeah,
0: so so a lot of that was already set in place. The laws were set in place, they knew. I mean, millionaires were made in the crack era. If you look at New York City, how many millionaires came out of, out of New York City at their high level, you know, the way they was operating at the high skill and sophisticated businesses they were running, drug empires, in fact, making millions of dollars on the daily. But this was all a plan, right? It was all set in motion. So, that being said, when he leveraging the crack law against as they say low level street dealers, that didn't even happen at my time. That didn't happen until like almost ten years after I had served my time. Wow, you know what I'm saying, so I was like at the, at the head of before it was actually leveraged against low level drug dealers, oh, okay, yeah,
1: so what happened with the charge, and when did you become incarcerated from that federal charge?
0: Yeah, so I eventually had to had to take a plea deal. They say ninety percent of the cases. I mean, the feds are one because people take a plea, hmm. right? They don't go to trial because it costs so much money yeah. to go to trial to get a lawyer. I end up having to settle for a private lawyer that they gave me. They appointed that lawyer to me, but he's on the same team. So I can't really expect an unbiased defense. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I can't expect that. So that being said, you know, I end up having a plea out. They initially came at me with 11 years because there was some guns involved. I'm like 11 years. I'm thinking I'm doing like I was looking at state time. When I was looking at the state time, they offered me 30 years, 10 to serve. First offense, I would have been out, you know what I'm saying, three years. First offense as, a, as an adult, I would have been out in three years on parole. However, when the feds came in, it's a whole different game. You know, there's a point system, and they look back at all your charges. They go back 10 years, your criminal history, points rise. It, it shifts you over to a higher sentence. It was just crazy. So I was just getting used to all that. He's talking about 11 years. I'm like, yo, I can't do no 11 years. You know what I'm saying? I can't do no
1: 11 years. And you have a son at this point, right? Yeah, when yeah, yeah. I have a son,
0: yeah. He's three years old when I ended up getting sentenced, man. So anyway, said so it was 11 years. I'm going to try to get it down to seven. But they already had worked the deal out. So mm-hmm. in the feds, they already got the deals worked out. They already talked. They already know what they're going to give you. They just want to make sure that you're going to accept it. So he comes back to me. He's like, All right, I can get you seven years. I can get the guns dropped because the guns weren't found in my possession. Even though they were my guns, they basically charged me and my co-defendant In the same way, because he was actually much older than I was. And I could have positioned myself where I could have said, well, he's the manager. And they give you more points for a managerial role in any type of conspiracy, right? You have the managerial role. And I'm like, he's like 10 years older than me. You know what I'm saying? I'm 19. This dude's like almost 30. So I could have played that, but that's not, you know, I don't get down like that. So I was like, you know, we're going to take him. We're going to do what we do.
1: We got got to unpack that because I respect that a lot where the situation, you're facing it head on and you're not afraid to tell the person who's involved like, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I'm not going to do that unfairly. What inspired you to do that? Had you seen any examples before of people taking the honorable path with that? Or what's, what nah, was your thought me, process?
0: For me, it was just simply uh, just how, how, how I was personally. Yeah. It was just it was just my style of being, right? Gotcha. And I think that if you don't have it in you, then you're going to fall. Most people do fall. Even these so-called you know, drug lords, yeah, they fall. You know what I'm saying? Most people in the, in the feds that are caught with, a, with a high, high levels of time like that, Have told or cooperated in some form or some fashion. But I was never brought up like that. You know, I just was do what I do. Yeah. I'm guilty of the crime. If I can hire an attorney and, and, you know, and finesse the law in some way and slide, then, you know, that's all good. But as far as me telling on anybody or not taking the weight that's mine, I don't get down like that. So me and him ended up getting charged the same way, same sentence, everything. They dropped the guns on both of us because he was actually, the guns were actually at his crib. Technically, they were my guns. Not all of them, but they, a lot of them were my guns. And I actually had moved the guns. It's crazy because I had a feeling something was going down. And I actually moved the guns from my crib and brought them to his crib because he's the one that had bought them for me. You know, he was former military. You know what I'm saying? So he had bought a lot of my guns. I had purchased them from him. But I, I had him hold the guns that night, and we, you know, we ended up getting knocked off. The guns were actually found with him.
1: So you get the, the charge. What does the sentence end up being? And, yeah, what happened? So the
0: way the feds do it, they don't sentence you in years. They sentence you in months. Gotcha. So they gave me 84 months, which was seven years.
1: So you go into the seven-year sentence. And so I can't imagine, but what what is it like?
0: I mean, in the early days, like when I went in, it was still like a lot of white-collar criminals. You know what I'm saying? Bankers, lawyers, you know, people like that. Who got
1: caught with like cocaine Business or something yeah. like that, that? Oh, no, yeah. they
0: got, they got, they was either, inbe- mostly embezzling, right? Oh,
1: gotcha, You know what I'm gotcha. saying? Wall Street yeah.
0: guys, stuff like that. You had a lot of those in the prison system, the federal prison system. And at the time the federal prison system wasn't as violent on the on the lower levels. But I actually was sent to a medium. It's a little bit more violent than like the low the lows and the camps and all that. So I started out in the medium. And that's really like to kind of test you, to mm-hmm. see how, what your behavior is gonna be like, to see if they gotta deal with you another way, if they gotta put you in a penitentiary, so forth and so on. And you know I read right, that
1: man? I read that one of the judges that was doing this sentencing or maybe another mentioned that he wanted you to view this time as like a college education. Yeah, that's what he told me. How did that come across when you first heard it? Was, were you like taking it back or were you like, wait a minute, that's a good idea?
0: I mean, I was taking it back initially when he told me, you know consider like going away to college. That's yeah. what he told me. I said, well, going away to college? I'm going to prison for seven years. You know, I never did that amount of time in my life. You know what I'm saying? The little time I did it in a juvenile facility probably was my worst time ever because it was first time getting locked up. I did nine months, but it kind of prepared me To the next stage of, you know, my criminal, my criminal lifestyle or criminal career, if you would. Because when I went to the feds, it was much easier to to deal with, but it was really hard in the sense that, you know, I was moved away from home. I really couldn't get many visits, things like that, my son. So, you know, I just dealt with it, man. It was what it was, but later on in prison, I would take that to mind, what he said. And I started really turning my incarceration into, into college, man.
1: And how'd you do that? Because it's a situation where the opportunities, a lot of people in their head, they have this image that you're going to go into jail, these opportunities to work and make money and things like that. It's not really money. I mean, you're getting like cents per hour, I think, in a lot of situations. So can you explain to people what that's like, and how hard it is to get started and how hard it is to make any money in prison? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to resort to to innovative, you know, sometimes um, um,
0: contraband ways of of making things happen to make money in a system especially if you got no support from the outside. And uh, early on, I had some support, but eventually all that support would die down. I was there to fend for myself. Yeah. So what happened was I started out working and getting 12 cents an hour
1: from there. 12 cents an hour. Let's let's stop and just yeah yeah, think about that. For anybody that's complaining about like things are hard. I worked for 12 cents an hour, man, (laughs) (laughs) straight up. Yeah.
0: I was just doing like, basically like landscaping Mm -hmm. on the prison grounds, 12 cents an hour. Cause you had to have a job, They, they made you work. You know what I'm saying? You had to work. So you had to get up six in the morning, you had a job, report for your job, and do your job.
1: Is that a flaw of the private prison system or where you have a system that has a lot of prisons being private? Like, is that a flaw of the system? Like, sounds like it is. I think that's a flaw of human nature. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? To be greedy, man.
0: Gotcha. And to, you know, and capitalize, you know, in a capitalistic country, man. Yeah. To capitalize on everything you can. So I feel like other if,
1: people's pain, you know? Yeah, the goal should be rehab you know uplifting people like healing healing people because so many people are there because of challenges that they've faced before where they haven't had the right information the right influences the right role models like
0: yeah yeah. the prison industrial complex is wicked man it's real yeah i'm
1: saying it's wicked they profit off your pain
0: period you know I'm saying that's not just black we know majority of individuals incarcerated are african-american but it's not just black everybody suffers in that condition right you know what i'm saying and that being said you know they're making money. It's like slave labor. I don't know if you're aware, but you know there was a current nationwide prison strike.
1: Oh wow! Where they, were, they were demanding,
0: um, you know, more pay. They were demanding, you know, rights, man. Yeah. Because they, they understand they're making these slave wages, and the prisons are, are, are benefiting from it. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a lot of private prisons, and a lot of private prisons that actually contract with the federal bureau prisons, which is the Department of Justice, right?
1: Talk about misaligned incentives. Yeah, that it, is it's like, government sanctioned. Wow. Yeah. So
0: I, I was a victim of that, right? 12 cents an hour. I would eventually work in the kitchen, get a little bit more money. Then I eventually got into the industries called Unicor, which is the Bureau of Prisons industry where you'd make furnishings that would be sold to the private and the government sector.
1: And this is a step up, but it's still really, it's a, really it's tough. A, it's a you're, a step you're talking up. about like 120 yeah. bucks a month, I think. I yeah, I was making was $100 like, a month, yeah. That's, that's hard. <laughs> that's yeah, I was
0: making $100 a month. But I'll be honest with you, that $100 a month...
1: Was know, a game changer. was I was where able was to sustain
0: myself. And a lot of that money, I would actually... I would send home money for my son. I was send home money every month of that little hundred dollars I was making. I would buy a lot of books. I would self-educate myself, you know what I'm saying? So you,
1: know. you don't have to go into it too much if you don't want to, yeah. but I'm really curious about, because I can't imagine what it would be like to be away yeah. from as a father. So I can't imagine what it would be like to be away. Could you kind of like walk people through what that was like for you having to watch him grow up? Yeah, uh, man. From it's the outside?
0: Like, when I had my son, my son he used everything, you know what I'm saying? I risked my life, I risked my freedom for my son. Straight up and down to make sure he had everything he needed because I didn't want him to, you know, suffer in the same ways I suffered. You know what I mean? You know, I was out there hustling and grinding, but I always took care of my son. I always made sure I was with him, spent time with him, and did the right things about him. Even while I was incarcerated, I would always write him letters, knowing that years later he'd be able to open those letters and see and hear my thoughts, you know, read my mind and understand the things I was going through, and you know, to under, kind of understand. You know, I'm grateful, man. I'm blessed that I was able to rebuild that relationship despite me being gone for all that time. rebuild that relationship with him and it's something I'm still working on. It's something that's actually ongoing, like the development of my and his relationship. I try to teach him the right, the right things and not to follow my footsteps and my path. Just do as I say, don't do as I do. But now that I was able to change my life, I'm more of a real role model for him to say, okay, my pops went through this, that and the third. I see the hell he went through and I suffered at the hands of that. So now, how can I like listen to what he's saying and kind of follow his footsteps and be like, I'm going to do this, you know, go, go this direction in my life. And I'm proud of my son because that's where his mind's at, right? But it was hard as a father being away from your child, trying to raise him if you could from prison through sure. letters and through visits, through phone calls. It was an arduous task, but I think I succeeded in a lot of ways where I could have failed.
1: As you're buying books at this point. You're talking to him. You're trying to keep yourself healthy. How did you get closer to the exit point and when you finally did get closer to exiting and... Getting freedom again. How'd you prepare and how'd you make that transition?
0: Just so um, I would save as much money as I could. With a little money I was getting, anybody sent me money, I would save it. So I had, like, I think I probably had like maybe $1,000 saved up. By the time I was released, I know they did, you know, they give you a plane ticket, give you a bus ticket. I was at the Atlanta camp. I remember they let me go and I flew up to Boston. I was going back to Rhode Island. That's where my home confinement was at. So I was going back to Rhode Island, but they put me on that, on that plane and, and that was that. And I'll be honest with you, when I came home, I really wasn't prepared in a sense of rehabilitation. I knew what I wanted to do in my heart. I knew I wanted to do the right thing, walk that righteous path. And I've been taught that way, right? I went deep into spirituality and I had aligned with that, with my ideals and, and that philosophy of living a righteous life. Unfortunately, reality sets in when you don't have a skill, you don't have a trade, you don't have, you know.
1: And everybody basically says, no, we're not going to hire you. Right, all the doors this, this are shut history. on you, right? yeah. It's righteous challenge,
0: right? One of the main things someone needs when they're released from prison is a support network. Right. You know what I'm saying, and on top of that, they need a sustainable income. You know what I'm saying, a gainful employment.
1: I didn't have is, none of that. You're going out talking to people, but it's doors are slamming. Like what's? Yeah. I, so I haven't experienced this, but what is somebody's reaction like when they ask you that question and you you tell them? Is it like an immediate door slam type thing? Or I mean, in some cases, it is. Most cases, you just have to
0: fill out the application, right? but that box is there. Right, yeah. Have you been convicted yeah. of a felony? Have you ever been convicted of a crime? I used to hate the, like, just the psychological effect reading that question. It used to bother me, man, because I, I knew that that meant the door was being closed in my face. I already knew what it was. So, so tra- most times, I wouldn't even fill it out. Completely. And, and hope for
1: the best. Traditional opportunities are basically, like, almost impossible to come by. Like, there's no traditional career path where it's like, you can do this that situation isn't there for you. Right. So what are you thinking about? How are you planning to get to make something happen when there are no opportunities?
0: Man, I'll be honest with you, I was working like, I was working delivering sandwiches at D'Angelo's. I was able to get a car from someone I was real close to. They was able to give me a car and I paid them down on the car, like $5 on the car. I used that to get a delivery job at D'Angelo's, man, straight up and down. Yeah. That's what I did. That was like a, a little bruise of my ego. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I'm used to making dough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yo... I can't afford this little $500 car. Right. I got to pay down the payments. I got to go deliver sandwiches, man. Delivering pizzas and all that. You know what I'm saying? I'm wearing the polyester, you know, yeah. uniform and
1: all that, man. Was it still like, there's a taste of freedom? You can see things on the horizon or?
0: Yeah, I mean, nah, man. It, it was blight, man. Yeah. I was like, I'm not feeling this. You know what I'm saying? But I had, I had to do what I had to do to stay out and to satisfy probation. But man, eventually I got back into the game. I got back in the drug game. I had no real... Trade, no real skill, you know what I'm saying? Where I could be on a path towards a career. I
1: just didn't have it. And you get back in at this point. Was it a fast track back to incarceration or uh, what happened?
0: Yeah, the first time I came home, I was only out like a year and a half. I was right back in prison. I tried to pursue music, which was one of my passions. Built a record label, doing all that. But I just couldn't get the fund that I needed to really finance it the right way. And I just went back to the streets, man.
1: So music starts to enter your life at this point, you go back to prison and as you're in prison and battling through that second sentence, are you still at a medium security facility? Is it similar to the first time or? No,
0: I ended up making my way down from the, from the medium when I initially went in. Yeah. I I basically became a model inmate, period. I wanted to be out of there as fast as possible. Right. So I mastered that. I became a model inmate. That was my way out. So I became like a model inmate, worked my way down from the, from medium to the low, to the camp and all that. When I went back, and whenever you go back, your points rise. And that's how they send it. They send it to you according to certain, your point level. And so they have these points they look at your crime, look at what you did. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're a violator, and they put your points higher. So this time I went back to, I, I think I went back to a medium. I went back to a medium. And I had to, you know, again, I had to work my way. Actually, I never even worked my way down. Oh, I did work my way down from a medium to a low, and I was in a low this time. Gotcha. Yeah, so I went right there a low. But I never, that, for that time frame, I never had left a low. I was stuck there. No more camps, none of that.
1: So you're getting closer to when this sentence is gonna be over. You're like, you're saying, being a model inmate, doing everything that you can. Was this transition better? Were you better prepared for this one? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and what, what things did you do that help with that?
0: Just really like took more advantage of the, of the programs they offered. They had certain programs in place at this time that they didn't have.
1: It was the last mile in, in your life at this no, point? Not the, was no, that...
0: the last mile that came later on. Gotcha. Um, that's actually a state program in San Quentin. Okay. And I was in the federal facility but they had a drug program where you could get like a year off your sentence. Really, for the short time that I had, I went back for like two and a half years and you only had to do 85% of that. So by the time that I was accepted into the drug program, I think it's like, I think it was like a 900 hour drug program, you do 900 hours and you get like a year off your sentence. By the time I was done, I would only be able, eligible for like nine months off my sentence. But I would also be going to the halfway house So I would get six months in the halfway house. So really, there was no play on me really getting any time off. It's So I finished and I go to halfway house and that's what it is. But I still took the program anyway. Then they gave me a basic general dive into psychology. You know what I'm saying? So formally, I was learning psychology and how, you know, my crimes, the victims of my crimes and how all that played out looking into my childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, it was real crazy, but I ended up doing it and I got a definite six months halfway house because of
1: it. Do you think that learning about psychology, because I know if I'm speaking from personal experience here, sorry about that, but from personal experience, I know that like investigating psychology has been one of the highest return on investments I ever do. Anytime I take the time out to do it, to try to understand myself a little bit better, I generally get confronted with stuff I'm doing that's stupid, that I could be doing better. Was that like the same oh, yeah, for definitely. you? Or? Yeah,
0: psychology really, really digs in Yeah, and, and really gets gets to the core cool or the core of your problems or the root of your problems, man, and how you can, how you can never get out of those problems you know, and make your life better. So definitely.
1: Cool. So you're doing music. You're starting to think more entrepreneurially now. Is this close to the time where you start reaching out to some people to ask for help, to ask for mentorship?
0: I, I mean, not, not because that second time I went in, I came back home. And I probably was only out like a year this time. I was back. So to fast forward to when that took place, it was like six years ago. I went in like 2011, I was released 2012. But while I was there, we fast forward to the story about Ben Horowitz. Yeah. And I, had, I learned about Ben Horowitz in prison and I was intrigued by who he was and you know, how he loved hip hop. And at that point I was 100% dissatisfied with my life. I was like, yo, I can't live this lifestyle anymore. I gotta make changes. And I was determined, I had a determined idea to enter entrepreneurship. Like really enter, it the same way I, I studied music you know the music business. The first time I was in, mm. and and took a path towards being a hip hop rapper, recording artist, and also an executive in the music industry. This time I'm like, I need to become an entrepreneur and really learn, learn this formally, right? And then leverage this to something. And then I, when I came across Ben, I was like, okay, there's a touch point. He loves hip hop. Perhaps he might be somebody that might invest in my music company when I when I come home. Sure. So that was kind of how I thought about it.
1: And one of the things I love about Ben's demeanor and everything about him is that. If he says he likes something, if he says, I'm a fan of this, he means it. And a lot of people say, I like rap, but I think Ben, like, if he hears something that's wise in rap, he incorporates that like philosophy or information into his own life, into his business practices. When did it click for you that this isn't somebody that's just talking about it, this is somebody that appreciates that culture?
0: Oh, man. First, the first thing was, I didn't reach out to Brenda two years after I was released, first of all. Though I read about him, while incarcerated in 2014 when I saw him on a, on a program on VH1 it was a documentary on the book by Steve Stout Tannin of America so when I saw Ben on TV I was like yo he really is serious about hip hop Yeah. Because if he wasn't he wouldn't be on that documentary or involved with it I didn't remember his face but I remember the name mm. and I just happened to have the channel on and I saw him that sparked me to do more research on him then I found out he had a book he just released The Hard Thing About Hard Things I was interested in that and I came across he had his blog, and then when I went to his blog, he had the latest blog post was called "Legend of the Blind MC." So when I saw that, I thought that was an odd, odd title. I'm thinking <laughs> some Wu Tang, some Wu um going on, right? So "Legend of the Blind MC." So that really, that title really intrigued me to like let me let me read this. Yeah. So I read that, and I learned why he loved hip hop so much. When I learned that, you know, because I thought it was a publicity stunt of sorts. Yep. When I first read it, you know, two years prior. But this, when I read that, I was like, "Yo, this is real. Like, he really loves hip hop. This is like authentic." Yeah. And I'd seen it was genuine, and that made me get more like more excited because I'm like, "Yo, okay, he really loves hip hop. Like for real, for real." <laughs> I read a couple more of his blogs, and I, I kind of like I kind of identify with his spirit. You know, he's a Gemini too, actually. Yeah. I identify with his spirit and the way he was writing, and how he was, de- you know, donating all the proceeds of his book, you know, going to a charity for women mm-hmm. and the struggle and all that. So. I really identified with who he was in the spirit. And I was like, yo, I was just compelled to reach out to him. It's like, yo, I got to reach out to this man.
1: So you and reached out. I reached out. Did Watch you it. agonize over the email? How long did that take? Nah, um,
0: it wasn't even, was even email. I, I did it publicly, right on Twitter.
1: Oh, even better. Yeah. Even better. I yeah. went right
0: at him. I went right <laughs> at him like, yo, I got a link with my dude. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And did you um, think
1: a lot about the tweet or did you just send nah, it and fired off? I, I
0: mean, I just I just hit him like, yo, I read Legend of the Blind MC. Yeah. I would have never guessed you know, why he loved hip-hop because right. that was a burning question in my mind. Like, why does he love hip-hop? Why? Yeah. Like, why does he love hip-hop? You know what I'm saying? All the white, gentleman, Jewish, billionaire, Silicon Valley, venture capitalist.
1: He doesn't have to. And in,
0: in, in in in, in checking off those things in that list, what, what really identifies with hip-hop? Sure. None of them. Hip-hop's from the struggle. Hip-hop's from poverty, right? So there was no connection. I didn't see one. But when I read his story of why he loved hip-hop, it was like a deep emotional connection this man had. And not only just the hip-hop, but African-American culture, mm-hmm. black culture. Like, he got it. You know what I'm saying? He got it. And it wasn't because his wife was, was black or African-American.
1: Right. You know what I'm saying? But he's been involved and in interacting with but that that's my, community. That's my, that's my point. those friends for a long his time. Father
0: was invo- his father was involved with the Black Panthers. Yeah. He was raised in Berkeley, the Black Panthers, Oakland, that whole thing. He was raised around black people. Like, that whole thing. Sure. He identified with it. He connected to it on a real level. You know what I'm saying? Later on, his wife comes along. She's African-American, right? Makes sense. I think that even more, even more that shows, you know, who he is. Yeah. And Ben's never been ashamed or shy of, of being who he is and being really real who he is. And that's why I admire and respect about him a lot. You know what I'm saying?
1: And because you took that initial cold contact and you yeah. built a very real relationship. So yeah. for everybody that's listening, I would love to hear you if you're willing to share a little bit about it. How did you build that relationship with Ben, and how did you take it from cold contact to a place where you're good friends with the Horowitzes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because this is an invaluable skill for anybody. You have to learn yeah, how to be I, I, valuable, how yeah. to be friendly, how to exactly. be like a value add to every situation, and, and that's you to like a T.
0: Right, um, right, right. And I think I think that I've always had a, a gift with building with people and connecting with people, no matter their walk of life. Like I'm saying, a, a lot, a lot of white people have always loved me all my life. They just say that it's not. I don't, I don't only connect with people from my background and my demographic, sure. or people that are just African American or black or whatever you whatever you want to say, I've always had a lot of white people in my life, you know what I'm saying? That have believed in me and, and, and have assisted me, I've been friends with. There's never been a bias for me in, in that regard. I built on someone's character. right? You know what I'm saying? And I may speak out against certain things from an African American's perspective, but at the end of the day, you know what I'm saying, it's about the human family, right? you know? So that being said, that cold contact with Ben was more like a touchpoint contact. I'm not gonna necessarily say it was cold. I say it was lukewarm maybe, because it, was, it was a, it up it was a doing touch the research. Point. Well, there was yeah. a touchpoint, right? The touchpoint was hip hop first right. and foremost. You know, Rockham is my man. That's that was one of Ben's you know, favorite artists at the time. You know, Ben knew I was connected to him, so that there was a touchpoint there with hip hop and you know the Rockham connection, and just me just reaching out to him. Just I think just being real, like you know, this is what it is. And when I actually got the chance to really build with him, I was more so like, yo, initially I was going to ask you to invest in my record company. But now that I really have this opportunity, will you mentor me? Because as the old adage goes, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach a man how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Yeah. And that's how I presented it. I really wanted to learn. I really wanted Ben to like mentor me and teach me what, what he knew and what he's gained over, the, over life to make him a billionaire. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to learn that. I never looked at Ben as somebody, how Silicon Valley looks at him because I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. right? I wasn't somebody looking at him as like an opportunity to you know, raise money for my company.
1: Which is such a good lesson because for people that get hit up all day for money, the right. last thing they want to hear about <laughs> is, can I get more money? Right, you, right. Don't, you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, like a pro tip right there. Yeah, so
0: I'd say, I've always been good at building rich relationships yeah. at high levels. You know, from Rakim to Tragic Gaddafi, I'll just mention him real quick. He's someone else that I link with. It's always been people at the, at the highest level that I've always been able to connect with. Mm-hmm. Even in the drug game. Like, I dealt with the dudes that, that was bringing it over. Right. Like, I was getting kilograms of cocaine. I wasn't you know, dealing with the street-level dealers and none of that. I always had the high
1: plugs, high-level plugs. Do you feel like people who are at the top of any hierarchy are different? And, I mean, obviously, they're going to be different in some regards. But, like, how are they different? And how... When you interact with them or think about approaching them, do you need to, basically, do you have any tips for people who are looking to network or interact with people like that about how they can succeed?
0: I mean, definitely study your subject, right? If if there's someone you want to connect with, even if you're a level of mentorship, right? Mm -hmm. No one understand them. You know what I'm saying? Do your research. Understand who they are and find touch points. My touch points with Ben was, of course, hip hop. The next touch point was that he was philanthropic. And I felt that if I could tell him my story and he can identify in some ways with me that I know that if he said yes to helping me or assisting me, it would change my life forever. I knew that. I knew that, period. That being said, I was determined to connect with him. And sometimes when you look to connect with people, for one thing, you never know there's so much more beyond what you can even think or fathom at the, at the moment, sure, that's going to manifest from that. Right. I'm connecting with him on music initially but I immediately pivoted and say, nah, mentor me, because knowledge is worth more than me than money. And
1: what was his reaction when you first brought it up?
0: I think he was open open to me and just in general, initially. Right. And it's very hard for someone like Ben just to mentor somebody that's not even in the industry, that's not sure. in the space. Time is a premium. <laughs> you know I'm saying? former drug dealer, you know what yeah. I'm ex-convict, all them things. But he believed in me. He gave me opportunity, nevertheless, and I took advantage of the opportunity. I made sure I leveraged every aspect of the opportunity, right? You know, to him giving me social equity, network equity, and him just giving me a chance, man. Cause he could have turned a blind eye to me, right? This is four and a half years later. He could have been, you know what I'm saying, push me out.
1: But he didn't. But he, he didn't right. He in many ways, like yeah, right. so, brought so, you in and like listened yeah, to what like, you had yeah, to say. Like, yeah. So what what happened in those like four and a half years Because 'cause you've done a lot since then and you're doing yeah. a lot right now. Yeah, so. man
0: just been learning the game. I've been learning this industry, learning the space, learning entrepreneurship, learning startup building. And I'm glad Ben didn't hold my hand throughout any of that. Yeah, He didn't hold my hand and he didn't like, tell me what to do or say, do this or say, do that. And I really ever asked some questions and how to do it. Cause I'm somebody like, I like to learn. I like yeah. to get in there and just do my thing. And you know what I'm saying? See how it is and kind of learn the hard way, right? Go the hard route. And Ben's not there to hold my hand anyway. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't want that. So I've been really appreciative of Ben in the sense that he's let me figure this out.
1: You and he know knows saying? what things to back up right. on. Yeah, yeah. Today. Ben
0: knows what time. I mean, ben, Ben's a genius in his own right. I consider him a hero of mine, a personal hero, you know what I mean? Because he believed in me and gave me opportunity. But outside of Ben, I have to mention his wife, Felicia Horowitz, man. Sure. Yeah. Like, I can't say Ben Horowitz without saying Felicia. She pulls a lot of strings and make things happen, man. And I'm really, really appreciative of her. Behind every great man. Yeah, yeah. man. Behind every great man, right, is a great woman, man. So I call her the queen. You know, what I'm saying I call her the queen, because she was really the one that really, after Ben introduced me to her, or introduced her to me rather, you know, when I did the Kickstarter and I connected with him and shared that with him. Then I made the song about him. called Veggie Cap like like Ben Horowitz. Felicia was like just really excited about that, and she really became like Ben said one of your number one supporters. And you know, she came to my I was I had the Kickstarter at the time. Ben had put money on my Kickstarter initially gave me his email address so I could reach out to him any questions I had. And then Felicia came behind that and she actually became my largest pledger on Kickstarter for Very my cool. debut album. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, so you put your debut album on Kickstarter, yeah. you get it going. What was the release like? What was creating it like? And yeah.
0: Yeah, so you know, we got the album done, released it. I had never actually released a, a studio album. A lot of learning experiences behind that. But you know, we dropped it and it, it was what it was. It was old material that I had recorded. So it wasn't like it was fresh material. It did its thing, and, and I know I moved on beyond that, and really was focusing on how do I take this opportunity and create something out of it yeah. beyond me just being a rapper. Because I said, like, okay, it's cool, I'm a rapper, but Ben's connected to Nas, he's connected to Kanye West, he don't need to be you know connected to me to be rapping. So I had to figure out in my own mind like how do I add value beyond just rap? And how do you, know you branch saying? out and start getting yeah, into other yeah. industries? I mean, Ben is... loved the song, Ben loved the video of the song. Everybody loved it, but how do I grow beyond that?
1: Yeah, I wanted to learn. And you've done that really rapidly. So now, I think you're one of the first artists that is an independent artist that's also part of United Masters, which is Steve Stout's new company. Yeah, Steve Stout's new company. So yeah, could you talk maybe a little about that and some of the other projects that you're working on? Because these are, for everybody that's listening, these are like essentially like uncharted waters. What Steve's doing is a brand new thing in the music industry, so Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm a part of it in the sense of people become part of the company. Any independent recording artist can use a platform. When I first heard about the platform when it was first released and the news came out about the platform, I thought it was ingenious. You know, I had always thought about, you know, independence and how do you take independent artists' talent and leverage it in a way where they can control their craft, control their art, right? And make the money off it. And I I like what Steve was doing with that. I'm going to release some music on this platform. So I'm back in the studio recording and I'm looking to release stuff in the near future on that platform. And of course, you know, Ben's... Chairman of the board on United Masters. Andreessen Horowitz, his company, invested in United Masters. So, you know, it just makes sense to support the platform and sure. align with the platform.
1: And outside of that, you're doing some, you're helping companies like Udacity. You're doing a bunch of different things. What else are you up to? Yeah. Um, uh, so got the movie. Um, Dude, you got, and by the way, congratulations. I got to just interrupt myself and yeah. <laughs> just bring that up. But that's a major deal. So you're going to be in a new series that's directed by... Ben Stiller. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Showtime. Love that in there. Yeah. So yeah,
0: so if we look at Udacity. I interviewed and I and I got an internship there. So I'm doing that now, and I'm involved with Udacity. Udacity is a company that I leverage to basically learn a career ready skill. Took the digital market, an inter degree program, and that actually Ben and Felicia actually provided me a scholarship to do that. The course was a thousand dollars. Took it. And there's no other way you, I could see leveraging $1,000 into $50,000 entry level yeah. on, on a career path. Right. There's no other way to do that, especially for someone from my background, unless you're selling drugs. Yeah, and unless you can't, it's illegal. And you, you can't, just can't to, do it.
1: You can't go to you college just too it. and get the type of training that Udacity wants or that any of the employers that Udacity works with wants. Right. So that's a great, great Yeah, so I made the decision
0: up. that I wanted to come up to Silicon Valley. I wanted to be out here. I talked to Ben about it, I talked to Felicia about it. They were very supportive of it but they weren't gonna force my hand or force me to do anything. It was more about what I needed decided to do for myself. Right. And what I decided was that Udacity was a way in, right? Taking a digital marketing degree program was a way for me to get them career ready skills and then leverage that into a corporate situation out here. Beyond that, I ended up getting the scholarship, then going to Udacity, doing the course, and now I have an internship there. And in the internship, I'm basically creating and building an initiative around the incarcerated formerly incarcerated to prepare them with content and deliver content to them that speaks to them in a way that they can leverage Udacity for success.
1: That's so important. That's so important because like the type of jobs that are available right now in the workforce, they're changing so rapidly that I think like Udacity is one of the few companies that can actually keep up with that and they know what's happening in terms of what jobs are open right now that need filled. Right. So that seems to be like a great step forward for people that are incarcerated looking to do something.
0: Yeah, right? Dashi's been a blessing for me, man. Just the opportunity coming from the outside, now I'm on the inside, like learning how EdTech startup is built. Yeah. You know, because similar things I was doing with Black FinTech, with the Black Group and all that, just the educational piece, like learning how that, that's how building, that works. leveraging,
1: aqua- acquiring yeah, knowledge. Building, right?
0: leveraging, acquiring knowledge. Yeah. yeah. We had a strong EdTech piece within that where we teach financial literacy, teach entrepreneurship education and all that. Sure, That's a platform and a foundation. So being able to go into an ed tech company as successful as Udacity is, and that's just on the cutting edge mm-hmm. of, of leveraging technology and education, it's been an amazing experience You know, thus far. I haven't been there long, but I've learned so much in just a short amount of time, just how operations work, how teams work, about the student experience sure. globally. So Udacity has been a blessing. And I look forward to really working with them and, and pushing that initiative forward. Regarding the Ben Stiller, yeah. the Ben Stiller thing, yeah. That's major. Yeah, so <laughs> I had an major. opportunity to get my acting on. That happened, Ben Stiller hand-selected me from a uh, background to a principal role. So I got some lines in the series. Awesome. It's on Showtime, it's called Escape of Dannemora.
1: Based on a true story. It's based on a true story, yeah, yeah
0: of the uh, upstate prison escape from Clinton Correctional Facility. So I actually had an opportunity to go into prison to shoot the scenes, going yeah. to prison. I was playing an inmate, not not a far, not a far throw from my my real life, but you know. Yeah. But I was hand-selected by Ben Stiller for a principal role.
1: Dude, congrats. Which is
0: huge. Which is huge, right? Yes. Just,
1: it was no, crazy. It, it's huge, and right? all this is like such a major deal. And I'm so excited for you, man. This yeah, is like this is game changing too, because you just got boots on ground in Silicon yeah. Valley. What, like three months ago? Or yeah. When did yeah. you come out?
0: I came out March first.
1: Yeah. So yeah. you're just getting started now being present and being in Silicon Valley and yeah. already you're making all this stuff happen. Yeah, just really, really exciting. Yeah, it's
0: exciting time right now.
1: Big time. And we like to end every interview and hang out with kind of like a lightning round of questions about the yeah. best media, music, books, things that you're digesting. So if you're ready, let's jump into that.
0: I'm ready, let's do it.
1: So what's the best book or one of your top three that you think about from time to time or maybe you revisit it occasionally?
0: Think and Grow Rich.
1: Yeah, Napoleon Hill's Napoleon Hill. wise, wise. That's why I got dude. yeah.
0: Napoleon Hill. That book helped me a lot just in developing certain habits. You know what I'm saying? There's certain disciplines that I would recommend that book to anybody.
1: Cool. What's your favorite app on the home screen or your phone right now? Audible. Okay. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Audible. Yeah, it's one of my go-to's as well.
0: I actually got the Hard Thing About Hard Things is my favorite play. Yeah. yeah,
1: no, that's a, it's a solid book. Got that on Audible, yeah. It's very cool. And what about, too, are there any musicians or albums that you've got on repeat right now that you're going back to?
0: Nas' new album, Nasir, listening to that, Pusha T, checking him out,
1: Kanye I mean, me produced joints. I mean, you taught me if you know, you know. Yeah, if you and know, you know. Dude, that is a, yeah. a solid anthem for sure, but for I've been revisiting that a couple times. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have time to to kick back, are you watching anything on TV, any type of like series or movies, or do you watch TV at all?
0: I don't really watch TV too heavy, yeah. You know, but um, most of all, you know, I take a break and check things out. I like comedies and stuff like that. But definitely check out the Luke Cage stuff.
1: You're gonna make some time for the Showtime series. Oh yeah, when it debuts, of course. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> you know that. Fair enough, Divine. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. It's thank always you. a pleasure to catch up. Respect what you do. This is awesome. Thank you so much. If there's much, anything that. that you want to leave listeners with. What would that be? Any final thoughts?
0: Yeah, man. Just just believe in yourself. You know what I'm saying? Persevere, especially in entrepreneurship. Persevere, focus, be diligent. Keep the faith. Beyond following your passion, follow your contribution. Ben always always says that, so.
1: Wise words. Yeah. Keep the faith. See you Uh, guys next time. peace. Peace. The Mission Daily is brought to you by the Twilio Signal Conference. Join the mission team on October 17th through the 18th in San Francisco. And when you join us at the conference, you can use the code mission20 to get 20. 20- hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Send off.